Well, it is uh, my privilege this morning on this beautiful morning to update you on uh, our capital campaign results. Every year, about this time of year, we renew our commitments to, to pay our mortgage, which is a very important thing. There's a lot to be said, as you know, uh, those of you who have them, for paying your mortgage. And our desire as a church is to pay it down quickly so that our resources can be used for other matters. So um, this year, as, as of right now, uh, the total amount that has been pledged towards our mortgage next year, our mortgage runs about $140,000 a year for the building you're sitting on and actually the entire property that we have left. So $172,000 is pledged towards next year, which is a matter of great, great thankfulness to God in a time when money is tight in our culture and uh, in a congregation with uh, many who are struggling to make ends meet. This marks significant generosity for which, honestly, as a pastor, I am deeply, deeply grateful. Next year, 10% of that amount will go to Haiti. To, that, to help with a ministry to that orphanage, to that church, to those churches in the city of Wanamint. Um, and you can imagine how far $17,000 will go in Haiti. Um, so, thanks be to God for that privilege. But think with me, what $172,000 would do in Haiti. And when our debt is gone, those resources will be free to do that work. Um, so, that is encouraging and very exciting. Um, there is a matter of concern, though, that I need to express to you related to this matter. Uh, at this point in time, 181 pledges have been received from North Wake. Um, what this means is that between 40 and 50% of our congregation have decided not to participate in paying down our financial obligations on our property. Um, and just as your pastor, that's a concern to me. And if you are a thinking person, that should be a concern to you. Friends, half of us cannot carry this burden without you. I mean, honestly, I am increasing my giving every year. But I cannot do this. We cannot do this without you. I know some of you are thinking, my gosh, I'm a poor student. You're a poor student who's part of our family here. Okay? This is our obligation. This is our responsibility. Join us. Don't sit this one out. We need your paltry gifts on top of my paltry gifts to take care of this matter. Half of our church cannot bear this responsibility without you. So, just practically, we need your help. We need the help of everyone who calls Northwake home. Now, also, I am concerned about what it is that might be lodging in your heart that keeps you from giving. I don't know what that is. I doubt it honors God. Um, 
It may be fear, it may be a variety of other things, but be very careful about sitting out a thing that our church collectively is committed to. Be very careful. Um, The lure of stuff coupled with an independent spirit is a spiritually dangerous mixture. It is good for us and hard for us as Americans to give to a set of priorities determined not by me as an individual, but by our church and our church leaders collectively. It is good for our souls to happily submit to that leadership and join in this matter. And I know some of you are thinking, look, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years. I'm here on a temporary assignment or I'm here in school and then I'm gone. Um, You know, I don't know and you don't know. But what these are your best and only two years to give to the church. Okay? Give your best. Don't consume the church for this season. Um, Make them count. So, on the one hand, we have much to be thankful to God for. On the other hand, there is some self-examination that must go on before God in this matter. And if you have questions, uh, meet with our leaders, get them answered. And join us. Okay. And now, the fun stuff, we get to open the word together. So would you bow with me in prayer? We'll commit both these matters to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for making us so rich. Um, it's just such a contrast to see that cluster of orphans on our high-tech projected screen. Oh God, we are we are the rich of which you speak. God help us to be generous and not to fix our hope on the wealth of this world which is so fleeting. So, Lord, we make this offering of these pledges to you for your namesake, for your pleasure, for your glory. And as we reexamine our hearts, I pray that you would give us great freedom and joy in this matter, knowing that you love cheerful gifts. Lord, now we open your word because we need to hear from you. And, Lord, we... We gather for that, for nothing less than with the expectation that the word of God would be proclaimed and your spirit would take it and drive it deep into our our hearts and give us hope. And so we ask that now uh, in the name of Christ and for his name. Amen. Well, every year... 
our elders set a, an annual focus, a priority for the spiritual growth of our congregation. And essentially what we say is in this area, we would like to see everybody who calls North Wake home uh, make an advance. So that this is a priority that our elders set as a spiritual oversight for every uh, small group, every family, every person who calls North Wake home. And as you uh, remember well, I trust, this year our priority is that we would all be better equipped and better able to share Christ boldly. In 2010, that's been our desire. That's been a regular punctuation of our teaching and regular uh, emphasis throughout our small groups uh, that we would be better at this. And as we bring that emphasis to a close, I want to underscore a couple of things. One, at the end of this year, we do not revert to sharing Christ timidly. Okay? This is not like we did it for a year, whew, we can go back to being spineless cowards. Okay? That's not the idea. The idea that we would make an advance this year and then sustain that, increase that. Okay? So it doesn't end. December 31st, Lord willing, it it just grows and grows, and we become more and more faithful in this matter. And we are entering a season that abounds with open doors for the gospel. Your home could be one of those open doors this year. Inviting neighbors in for Christmas uh, celebrations or, or sharing meals or... Sharing a tradition where conversation about Christ might begin or move forward from where it already has been. So extraordinary opportunities to continue and really finish this emphasis strong in the remaining few weeks of this year. So if this has not been a strength of yours this year, you can still jump in on this. God can still use you in this. And I encourage you to do so um, this season. Now, what I'd like to do today is let you in on what next year's focus will be. What our emphasis is. And the elders have crafted a statement that goes like this. That next year in 2011, we want that to be a year where we present a compelling vision of the church. That challenges us to truly be the church. Finding our primary identity and mission in being an integral, inseparable, glad, and willing member of Christ's church. Now, I realize that's a bit wordy, uh, so there's a bumper sticker that goes with it. Next year is the year where we learn to be the church. Okay, that's really all that you need to walk out today remembering of that slogan. Be the church. We're going to learn together. What does it really mean? To be the church, not to do church, not to attend church, but for you and me together to be the church. And that's the question that we want to explore together today. Really look at the tip of a whole iceberg of teaching that we'll hopefully unwrap together next year um, on what it means to be the church And to do that, I'd like to look at what probably at first glance seems a really unlikely passage to learn about the church from. 
And if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, that's the passage that we're going to focus on today. And I'd like to just read it to you, starting in verse 21 for your consideration. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now, you read that, and admittedly, it seems a strange place to learn about being the church because it's a passage about marriage. Um, and indeed, it is about marriage. I'm not going to refute that or change that at all today. But if you read, it's interesting, if you read the next two verses, Paul shows kind of a different center for these verses. He quotes from the Old Testament, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ in the church. Paul says, I am talking about Christ in the church. Behind all this teaching about how to be married looms his understanding of what it means to be the church. So what, what I would like to do today is unpack some of what Paul's teaching in this particular passage about what it means to be the church. And the first thing that's so evident as you start out reading this, looking not primarily about marriage, but looking primarily about what it means to be the church, the first thing, number one thing, is that to be the church is to live willingly under Christ's lordship. That just jumps right out of the blocks in this passage. It is to willingly embrace that Jesus is Lord of the church and of my life. Um, look with me at the very first verse, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Underneath everything that Paul is teaching in this section about submission, submission in marriage, submission in family, lies the reality that we are to be living as God's people in submission to Christ. That's shaping, coloring everything he's thinking about. And 
he comes at this from a number of different angles, I think, so that we'll see it. In verse 21, where it, it says, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's probably been domesticated just a little too much. A lot of your Bibles will read a more literal rendering, out of fear of Christ. Um, fear, fear is different for us when we are believers, than what fear of Christ was like when we were rebels against God. But it's still fear. It is still an awesome fear. And honestly, this time of year does not help with fearing Christ. Um, You know... Everything that we think about this time of year is this little baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus. Um, No crying he makes and all that. Who's afraid of the baby Jesus? You know. But in case you didn't notice, if you read a little further in the story... Baby Jesus is all grown up. Okay. He's not baby Jesus anymore. And he himself has said that he is coming back as Judge Jesus. L- listen to his words. In John chapter 5, he says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. The voice of this judge will summon everyone from their grave. Such is his authority. They will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise before this judge to be condemned. Now, however you work out your scenarios about this coming day of judgment, a couple things are really clear. One, it's coming. And two, Jesus' words should give you pause when you contemplate doing evil, sharing an evil. Actually, that's not... That's not exactly right. Um, Jesus' words should not give you pause when you contemplate evil. His words should grind you to a halt and make you run for your life from evil. So severe are the words of baby Jesus all grown up. See, the church is to fear Him such that we obey Him. And in this case, that obedience comes in our submission one to another. Our fear of Him leads us to submit to those He has placed over us. And Paul's clear. 
Our submission one to another is rooted in our submission to Him. Uh, Look at a couple of the verses in our passage. Verse 22 and verse 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Paul says it twice. He shows us twice that our lives are be marked by submission. First, he says, wives are to be found in submission to their Lord. That is the basis for their submission to their husband. It flows out of submission to Christ. And then he says that the church is to be in submission to Christ in everything. Now, if you've ever thought for a minute about this whole submission in marriage thing, your mind has already run to the fact that there have to be some exceptions to submission to your husband or a husband. And almost everybody agrees that there are, that you, you cannot submit to your husband when he's leading you into immorality or disobedience to Christ. You know, bank robbing, for instance. You don't follow your husband into bank robbing. You just don't do that. It dishonors Christ. So there are limits. But not with Christ. There are no limits. There are no exceptions. We are always to be in willing, fearful submission to His Lordship. In his book, uh, Generation X Christian, about younger Christians leaving Christianity, author uh, Drew Dyke relates one interview with a young man who left Christianity to join the Wicca religion. Uh, Morning Hawk Apollo is his name. Um, Evidently, in Wiccan practice, uh, it's common to rename yourself, and he chose the name Morning Hawk Apollo. Um, He discussed his rejection of Christianity with this candor. He says, ultimately, why I left Christianity is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will. In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. And at some level, he's got it right. Christ demands our submission in everything. In everything. Because, Paul says, he is our head. Um, Verse 23, in between those two. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, of which he is the Savior. Christ is the head of the church, his body. And we'll return to that kind of body uh, metaphor in a minute. But suffice it to say that the body is meant to obey the directives of the head. And in the church, let me be absolutely, perfectly Crystal clear. Christ 
is head of the church. It is not me. It is not our elders. Christ is head of the church. It is not me. It is not you. It is Christ. And it has been part of the DNA of this church from the beginning to safeguard you from becoming followers of Larry. A more asinine thing I cannot contemplate. And so, with great intent, we have endeavored to protect you from that folly, from the positioning of the special senior pastor parking place. You look hard for it. You'll find it. It's behind the dumpster next to the alley behind the office. That's set aside for me. And for your good. Honestly, part of the reason my sabbatical was as long as it was, was not just for my sanity, but it was so that you would not be confused about what it means to follow Christ's voice in this church. Christ alone is the head of the church. And so I hope for those of you who took a sabbatical along with me this summer, and because I was not preaching, your attendance became more sporadic, I do hope you feel very silly about that. That's a silly thing to do. I'm being kind. Christ Alone is the head of his church. Commentator put it this way on this passage. Pastors and church boards do not lead churches other than to help them find the purposes of Christ. We fear Christ and submit to him supremely in everything because because he's our head. He's the head. So what does it mean to be the church? It means we're living out our lives in fear of Him, in submission to Him as the head of our church, the head of the church. And this has many marks, I suppose, but principally it reveals itself in a willing obedience. Willing, fearful obedience to Christ in all things. Does that mark you? Would people say that that marks you? Would your spouse say that about you? Would your friends Say that that marks you. Do you fear bending the rules if they benefit you, but they would dishonor Christ? Um, When you enter a room or a group, does the bar get higher or lower because of your presence and example? Does willing submission to the Lordship of Christ mark you? To be the church is to live in obedient submission to Him who is our head in everything. In Everything. Christ rules every area of our life, together and apart. Paul says, 
That's what it means to be the church. And we'll, we'll talk much and often about that next year, I'm sure. But he also says something else. It's an important, beautiful compliment to what we just talked about. He says that to be the church means that you are deeply loved by Christ. Um, look with me again at verse 25 and following in our passage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. To be the church means you are loved with a sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, nourishing love. A sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, nourishing love. And I'm choosing those adjectives carefully, hopefully right out of what Paul's saying here about the way Christ loves us, the way he loves you. So let's walk through those together. First, you're loved with a sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. to um, another insight from a book. Um, I believe it's called For God So Loved That He Gave. It's the title, I believe. He writes, The New Testament consistently interprets both God's love and Jesus' death in terms of this sacrificial gift that is given. This is how God loves. He gives. And what does he give? Himself. Out of his love for a broken and defiant world, God gives. He gives this gift. It's a little strange. Don't we normally give gifts to celebrate an achievement or to mark a joyous occasion, such as a birthday, anniversary, graduation, or something along those lines? Occasionally, we give a gift after a misdeed. As when a man sends flowers to a woman as a peace offering from some failing on his part. But here, with God, he says, the innocent and offended party is the one who gives the gift. God has done nothing wrong, nor have we achieved anything we're celebrating. God looks at his rebellious creation, defined by its resistance to him, and what does he do? He gives a gift. The gift. This is how God loves. He gives. And you need to understand, this is no contemporary Christmas giving with pretty wrapping and a pristine hand-carved manger. No, this is, this is a king born in a disgusting animal's feed trough kind of giving. 
This is the owner of all things in the universe stooping to live in a society without any of the modern conveniences or cleanliness that we live in. It's that kind of giving. It is a most powerful being in the universe taking a beating, being whipped, carrying the cross kind of giving. It is the only begotten Son of God, very God and very man, stretching out His hands and taking nails that should have been ours kind of giving. Do you understand what it means that He so loved you that He gave Himself up for you? It's almost beyond grasp. There was a movie that I saw a long time ago. So don't rush out and rent it. I don't remember if you should. Okay. By the way, citation in a sermon is not always endorsement. Okay. So use discernment with what I quote from. Uh, but in this movie, it's called Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Okay? I'm, I'm serious. Um, there's a lady named Rosalie Futch, and she's a small-town West Virginia girl who enters a contest, and she wins a date with movie star Tad Hamilton. Okay? Meanwhile, Rosalie, what she's unaware of is that her best friend and boss at the local Piggly Wiggly grocery store, Pete, is secretly in love with her. So you get the scenario here? Pete, distraught over her winning this date with Tad Hamilton and the um, unbeatable competition involved, seeks counsel from that great secular source of wisdom, the local bartender. Her name is Angelica. And Pete says to her, so the problem is, I'm in love with Rosie. And she says, you know, I always thought maybe you were. So how much do you love her? Is it love? Is it big love? Or is it great love? And he says, like, what, what do you mean? She says, uh, well, love, you get over in two months. Big love, two years. Great love, she says, great love changes your life. You are loved with a great love that is intended to change you. Specifically, it is intended to purify you. Look at the next couple of verses, 26 and 27. Uh, He says, back in 25, He gave Himself up for her, Christ did, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The great love of Christ for his bride, the church, for this church, for you and me as members of his church, is intended to transform us. It is intended to purify us, make us holy. And it's interesting, uh, many commentators on this section of Scripture trace it back 
Um, this washing with water through the word, not to baptism so much, but back to an Old Testament text in Ezekiel 16. And I'd like to read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but its graphic nature is compelling. Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 3. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Not a good pedigree. And on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by. And saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I I bathed you, he says, with water. And washed the blood from you. And put ointments on you. And I clothed you with an embroidered dress. And I put leather sandals on you. And I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears. And a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. The love with which we are loved has purified us. We've been changed. And it is intended to purify us all the more in our day-to-day lives. The church is loved with a sacrificial, purifying, and exclusive love. Again, look back at these verses, verse 25 and 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse in between those two is verse 26. It says, Uh, He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. That expression, to make her holy. Some of your Bibles render that to sanctify her. It's an expression that has the idea of setting someone apart. And in this instance, um, it is an exclusive setting apart, an exclusive love that sets us apart, that lays claim to us forever for one lover only. The church is for Christ alone, and He will not share us with any other. 
And that's what our, our weddings reflect. If you've ever been to a, one of the last remaining traditional weddings on earth, at the beginning of the wedding, and I, lo- I love this part of the ceremony, there's a thing called the declaration of intent. And uh, usually it's done right before, at the beginning of the service, before anything starts, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And the pastor will say to the woman, and then again to the man, but to the woman in this case, um, Susie, will you have this man to be your husband, to live together with him in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And then it's asked, it's asked also of the man, See, the love of Christ, this great sacrificial purifying love, is intended to mark us off as His. So that we would forsake all others and be faithful to Him alone as long as we live. This means we can't dabble with Christ and the world. We cannot be here Sunday mornings and worship Christ and then go out and live as we please all week long. Can't. As Jesus himself would put it in one instance, you can't love God and mammon. You just can't. And I think you see now why unfaithfulness is such a God-dishonoring thing in our marriages. It's contrary to love. It's contrary to the way God loves us with an exclusive, set-apart, for-him-only kind of love. I wonder, would you say this morning that Christ is really your one great supreme love? Could you say that? And are you reciprocating the kind of exclusive love that he has professed and lavished on you? See, to be the church means that we are loved with a sacrificial and purifying and exclusive love. The last adjective in that description is a sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, nourishing love. It comes from verses 28 and 29. It says, in the same way... Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. He feeds it, Christ does, and he cares for it. He does this for the church. He does it for this church. He does it for you and me. Some of your Bibles uh, render this more colorfully. He nourishes and he cherishes it. This is language of care. Christ is caring for you. Each and every day, he is interceding, protecting, instructing, rescuing, maturing, sustaining, providing. Each day, he is caring. He is nourishing you. But it's also the language of affection. Isn't it? He cherishes us. 
as an expression of his love for you. He's, he's caring for you. Christ cares for you. He's not indifferent or mechanical. He wept over cities. He was moved by the plight of widows. He felt compassion that motivated him to act like no one else. And now in an ongoing daily way, as an expression of his love for the church, Christ cherishes you. It's a nourishing, cherishing love. And some of you this morning may be thinking, but I can't see it. This daily caring for me. My days are hard and my suffering is endless. I just can't see it. Christ is caring for me. He's nourishing and cherishing me. Perhaps the story by Jennifer Rothschild will help those of you who are in that place. She says, uh, she writes, It was a very crowded bus and all the passengers looked sympathetically as Susan made her way down the aisle. She fumbled with her cane and as she nestled herself into her seat, the onlookers just watched with question and concern. It had been a year since Susan had lost her sight. When she first became blind, she fell into a deep pit of depression. Her world had crumbled. Her sadness overtook her. Not only was her heart crushed, but so was the heart of her husband, Mark. He so loved his wife and wanted to help her, and so he did. Inch by inch, he helped her pull out of that pit of depression, helped give her skills and confidence and to regain her sense of self. And that husband, so in love with his wife, did all he could to help her in her new state of darkness. Well, after many months of Susan's blindness, she began to feel more confident because of Mark's help, and she felt like she could perhaps return to her job again. And Mark promised that he would help her. So every day, Mark would drive to his wife to work, walk into her office, make sure she was settled, and then leave and go to his base that was across town because Mark was a military officer. And then he would come back and get her from work, and this went on for several weeks. And every day, Mark so wanted to help his wife... But the burden was becoming heavier because it was becoming logistically impossible for him to make it to his base on time. He dreaded having to announce to Susan that he wasn't going to be able to drive her to work, but in the end he had to. She replied, I cannot ride the bus to work. I'm blind. How am I going to know how many stairs there are? How am I going to know what path to take? I feel like you're abandoning me. And Mark's heart was crushed. He promised her like he had done from the very beginning. He would do whatever it took to help her until she felt confident and independent on the bus. And he helped her with the routes. He helped her learn the stairs, learn the paths. And so finally, after several weeks of doing such, Susan was confident. He went to his base. She went to her work. Monday morning, she got on the bus. and She went to work. She came home. It was flawless. Then Friday morning arrived. Susan made her way onto the bus And as she went to pay her fare, the bus driver said, Ma'am, you sure are lucky. Susan said, Are you talking to me? And the bus driver said, Yeah. It must feel good to be cared for as you are. Susan replied, I don't know what you mean. Bus driver said, Well, you know, every morning when I drop you off at your stop, As soon as those doors open, I can see that man standing over there at the corner. And he watches you. As soon as you step off the bus, his eyes are on you. I think he's some kind of military officer because of his uniform. His eyes follow you. 
as you walk across that parking lot. And his eyes don't leave you as you're trying to walk up those stairs. And when your hand touches that doorknob, his eyes are on you. Until you open that door and go inside, that man doesn't take his eyes off you. And once that door closes, he stands straight and tall, like a sentinel. And he salutes you. And then he blows you a kiss. And Susan bursts into tears. She had no idea that her husband had been watching her. But the lover of her soul never took his eyes off of her. See, to be the church means that every day, each day, he cherishes and nourishes you. He has promised you that. But often it is in ways simply that we do not have eyes to see. What does it mean to be the church? It means we're in happy submission to Christ as our head, our Lord. And it means we are loved by Him, sacrificially, exclusively, in a way that purifies and nourishes and cherishes us every day. And Paul ties it all together in this metaphor when he calls us in verse 30. He says, we are members of His body. To be the church, Paul says, is to be Christ's body. And he has in mind those two things we've been talking about. To be the body is to be in submission to the head. To be anything else is to suffer some terrible ailment in our, you know, it's almost freakish when a body cannot, or worse not, will not respond to its head. But to be the body is also to be cared for in an extraordinary way. I mean, we love our bodies, don't we? Think of everything you do for your body. And I take amazing care of my body. I may not show, but I take amazing care of my body. I mean, I feed it three squares a day at least. I take it for bike rides. I buy it comfortable furniture. I take it to the doctor when it's ill. I make sure it gets rest, maybe even a nap when it's tired. I dress it up nice. I wash it and douse it with cologne to make it smell nice. I love my body. I take really good care of my body. See, something has gone terribly wrong if someone fails to clothe or feed or care for their own body. And so to be the body of Christ, according to the way Paul's using it here, is to be in submission to the head and to be greatly loved and cared for. My concern is that those might not be marking us as they should here at Northway. Are they marking you? As a member of Christ's body, are you living in submission to Him in everything? In everything? Are you cherishing the love that so cherishes you? So, our time is way gone, and I apologize for that. But I do want to close, have the team come and lead us in closing prayer. Um, and if God has been speaking and prompting to you this morning, a great way for a first step of response is simply to come forward with a friend or grab one of our leaders who hang out in the front and have prayer. You can come alone and just you and God have prayer, but it's a great kind of intentional step. So as the team comes, let's stand together.
Let's worship our king and respond to him as he's been speaking to you.